Today, we're going to take our third step toward understanding the good news. Now, leading up to Christmas, we've been working at understanding the gospel. And this morning, what I want to show you is that God's compassion for us is our only hope. Uh, God sees right where we are. And this is a statement about each of us. God sees exactly where you are. And God knows your deep needs, maybe better than you know yourself. And his mercy at the sight of you in your need is stirred, which is what has moved him to come and rescue us. And apart from that rescue, we're helpless. But because of God's great love for us, the gospel tells us that he's come to save us in Jesus. And that's what I want to set before us this morning. In order to refresh you or to share for the first time, I want to just touch on what I shared for the last two weeks, since this is a part of a series of messages. Uh, I described our situation in the weeks behind us as follows. First, under the power of sin, in our iniquity and in our transgression, we've, been, we've become separated from God, uh, fractured in our relationships with one another, and no matter how, we, how, how hard we try, we're not able to uh, return to God or restore the relationships that are broken in the world in which we find ourselves. Even alienated from our true selves, we've been driven out of our right minds by the oppressive consequences of sin in the world, which has affected everyone altogether. And, and if you've never heard this kind of language, I bet you would agree when you look at the world that there is a problem which none of us seem able to fix. Would you agree? God's compassion for the world that we find ourselves in is our only hope, and it is far stronger than anything that can separate us from God. God's love is stronger than sin. Did you hear that? If you would take that idea out this morning, you'd be one step closer to understanding the gospel, which is the thing above all things which we've been invited to understand and accept and believe as Christians. No matter how deep and terrible the misery gets, it can never reach as deep as the love of God. No matter how earth-shaking the problems become, never ever can it shake God's determination to be for us and to love us and to hold us together in his loving embrace and hands. The prophets of Israel knew this very well. Uh, throughout their history, again and again, they made it plain that the one reason that the people of God persisted despite their consistent rebellion from God, and anyone who reads the Old Testament will be shocked at how rebellious God's people are. The only reason that they've been maintained as a people, the prophets teach us, is that God has decided not to deal with his people according to their transgression but instead to have mercy on them. Uh, listen to one way it's put by uh, the prophet Micah. And this is in chapter 7 of his book. In verse 18, he asks a question. Listen. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of your possession. Who is so gracious and merciful to... to Set aside all the misdeeds of his people, even though they knew. Who is like that? The answer that Micah expects to come is no one's like that. In fact, his name, Micah in Hebrew, means who is like our God. And the answer is no one is like our God in his mercy. In, verse, in the second half of that verse, he, he expounds this idea further. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in showing clemency. A clemency is a decision not to force 
a perpetrator to face the consequences of his misdeeds, but instead to be lenient. And here Micah says God is unique in his delight in showing leniency, thinking about everything that God has done as the root of why Israel still persisted. Micah was astounded by God's grace and mercy. And then when he looked forward ahead and wondered, how will this people hold together? How will, they pers- how will they continue to go forward in this world? He answers the question with this hope in verse 19. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah is honest about the sins of the people, the ways that they've departed from God's path, and he thinks God will do something with all of that debt. He'll throw it away. He, he imagines the twisted ways that they still lived, and he sees God as the great, um, the great giver of a straight path, and, and God himself will rescue us. And it all comes down to this one word, according to Micah. It is the word compassion, that God will look upon us, and our plight will cause his heart to move, and the love that he feels for us will move him to rescue us. And the gospel, the good news is that God's compassion is for all of us. And and here you should take this personally. It is for you insofar as God knows exactly where you are in need and exactly where you've departed from his way, and yet still his love is for you. And that's good news not just for us, but for all people. In Jesus, the hope expressed in Micah has been fulfilled because Jesus is the one who fixes our problems. He is, in effect, God's compassion in person. I'm going to talk about Jesus for a little bit. Uh, Jesus was born not far from where Micah lived and not far from the city of Samaria, which we've talked about especially in these last two messages. Uh, He was born into a world which hadn't progressed much further toward God from those days. In fact, it was a world where people were broken just as they had been centuries earlier. Uh, Jesus came to the place where infirmity and disease was still ruining lives for people. He came to the place where heartbreak followed death and loss. He walked among people who had a vision for what their lives should be like, but even though they tried to get there, they weren't able to. And so he knew up close what it was to be deeply disappointed and broken. He came to the world where people wanted to treat each other well, but instead they constantly were competing instead of cooperating. They were knocking each other down. Everyone inclined to put himself or herself first, even against his best intentions. The world that Jesus came to was a world that was tangled up in the oppressive powers of sin, separated from God, separated from one another, even separated from oneself. Jesus knew that world. It's our world too. Don't you see that? And when he came, and when he saw the people who were trapped and miserable, Matthew tells us what it did to Jesus to see that. In in chapter 9, verse 36, there's one place where Matthew describes the effect that the world had upon Jesus. Look at these words. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When sheep have a shepherd then they're safe. They're protected from the enemies that they aren't able to protect themselves against. And they have everything they need. The shepherd leads them to the places where there is water and where there is pasture to feed upon. Apart from the shepherd, as soon as the sheep are are separated from the shepherd, 
they're helpless because they'll eat everything that is around them but then have no way to find their way to the pastures that will feed them. And so Jesus looks upon the crowds and what he sees is all around him people who are helpless and defenseless, people who are pressed down and harassed by hostile spiritual powers, uh, literally defenseless against the threat under which they suffer because of their sin. The plight of the crowds did something to Jesus, and it's there in that word that moved him to compassion. I want to spend some time on this word together, and I want to talk about the Greek behind it, partly because it was really hard to study Greek in seminary, and it's got to feel like it was worth something. And also because the word compassion in Greek, it's fun to say, it's the word splunkizomai. Isn't that a good word? You want to say it out loud, splunkizomai. You don't have to, but you can say it under your breath, splunkizomai. The word started long, long before it was used in the Bible. In ancient Greece, when an animal was brought to the altar for sacrifice, its organs were removed, the noble organs, the kidneys, the heart, and the lungs, and the liver. They were taken out and set aside, and those were called the splunkna. And so for centuries, that word was just a physiological word. It meant the guts of the animal. But somewhere around the 5th century before Christ, that word was moved from being a noun, and it was brought into literature as a verb to describe the unique human experience of being moved so deep down inside of yourself that you can't even grasp a good word for it. Splunkizomai was the experience of the deepest down movement of your heart and your soul at the sight of someone who you love so much that you could never remain aloof from them, but instead their situation goes right into your guts. Have you ever experienced something like that? I was driving on on the turnpike one night by myself, I pulled off into the rest area, and when I opened my door, I heard loud shouting. I turned and I saw a very large muscular man leaning over a woman in the front seat, holding her by the shoulders and screaming right in her face, and I couldn't ignore it. My stomach got twisted up. Something in a man being violent against a woman, it moves me. I walked right over to him, I grabbed his arm, and I said, you get out of her face right now. He looked at me, he stood up. It was my splunkizomai that moved me over there. <laughs> he was way bigger than me. I think he had pity for me because I was so teeny. He left. But that's what drew me there. And you'll know this experience yourself in one way or another. Maybe you've been so moved at the sight of the suffering of, of a child, let's say, that there's no way you could do anything but go to them. A man is turned and twisted up on the inside because his beloved child or a friend or a spouse is wounded and, and it's, he's drawn to it. That's Blankizomai. Or mother love. When a baby is born and the cry first sounds in the room and it does something inside of you, that nothing else does. That's Splunkizomai. And now the Bible tells us that when Jesus appeared and he saw the crowds who were harassed and helpless, he couldn't stay away. Instead, it went right into his heart and it twisted the deepest parts of him up. It, it, it moved him in a way that it, it drew him to those who were in need and suffering. And what the scriptures tell us is that when we see who Jesus is, then we see exactly who the Father is. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is described in this manner. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is the exact 
image of God himself. He is the one who, though he had equality with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he came to be found in the form of a servant. And when Jesus looks at the crowds, he's moved with compassion. When he looks at you, and this is something that you have to own if you're going to hear and believe the good news, he's moved with compassion because your plight moves him deep down inside. The story that we've been building our messages around, the story of the city of Samaria, it illustrates what we need to understand if we're going to own and grasp the gospel, which tells us that it's God's compassion that is our only hope and that that compassion has come in person in Jesus. The city that was brought to the brink of death by the presence of the hostile army, which had set up its tents in a great big circle around the, the city in the valley, that enemy that set up that siege, which was slowly starving the people into submission, preventing any trade from coming into the city, the plan was working because the famine had become so severe that the people had been driven to devouring their own children. Folks were hostile to each other, out of their minds, blaming God for their trouble. And then four lepers are introduced in this story. And they're ordinarily far worse off than everyone else inside the city. But when we meet them, and we talked about them last week, their desperation is equal to every citizen within the city because everyone's been brought so low. And this is the theological lesson there. It is sin that is at the root of the trouble. And no one can do anything to fix it. And so the lepers come up with a plan. They're going to defect to the enemy encampment and maybe they'll be spared, but probably they'll be killed. And either way, it doesn't matter. That's how desperate they are. Now this morning, I want you to go further with me in what happens to them because it's going to show us how God's compassion sets things right. In verse 5 of chapter 7, here's what we read. They arose at twilight to go to the Aramean camp, but when they came to the edge of the Aramean camp, there was no one there at all. As they moved through the twilight, they rehearsed what they would say to the enemy if they got a chance to speak before they were killed. But then they arrived there at the tents, and there is no one present at all. No soldiers, just tents as far as they can see. A mixture of shock, relief, confusion, and wonder must have struck the four men. Look at how the narrator describes what had happened while they walked. This is verse 6. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. Now only... Extremely well-established kingdoms had armies with chariots and horses in these days. The Egyptians and the Hittites did, but not the Israelites and not the Arameans either. Which is why when they heard the sound which God made them hear, they responded as they did. Look, so that they said to one another, the king of Israel has hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to fight against us. God tricked them. God did what needed to be done which no one else could do, which is why this happened. Look at verse 7. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp just as it was and fled for their lives. The fear which God put in the enemy was so great that they left everything behind in their haste. 
all their provisions and their supplies, and now the lepers stand before a vast field of tents loaded with silver and gold, clothing, food and water, everything required to meet their needs, and not only their needs, but also the needs of everyone back in the city too. And if we pause here, if we pause here and ask what has happened, we discover three elements in this story at this point which illuminate corresponding elements in the gospel, which we need to understand if we're going to understand the good news. I'm going to enumerate them simply. First of all, the story shows us that God has fixed the problem without any assistance at all. Dwell on this for a minute. Not because anyone did anything to help. Not because there was some piece missing, which faithful people added, but only because God decided to The problem of the enemy was fixed all by God's doing. That's the first thing. And now secondly, if you you think of the condition not only of the lepers in this moment, but also of everyone else in the city of Samaria, you see the second element of the gospel. God fixed the problem for everyone, not just for the people who know it. And I pause here because religious people get both of these wrong a lot. And when they do, it makes it impossible for them either to receive or to pass on the gospel. Just as the consequences of sin affected everyone in Samaria, the consequences of God's intervention affects everyone in Samaria too. The oppression has been lifted for all citizens equally. The people in the city don't know it yet. That's a difference. But the enemy is gone for everyone. And all they need in in the city is to be told and then to be invited to a free feast. And it's for them just like it is for the lepers. Do you see that? And then the third element, and this one's not as immediately apparent in the story, but if you remember why Samaria was where it was, which is because of the sin of the people, the third element is this. God fixed the problem, not because of anything in the people, but because of something in God. And that something in God is God's compassion. The thing that Micah said would be their only hope, that God will again have compassion on us. The thing that Jesus showed in his own person is what's true about God, which is that he has decided that our starvation matters to him, that our spiritual emptiness moves him in his heart, that every single problem that we experience, feeling far from God and broken up from other people and even alienated from our own true selves, all of those things go right down into the guts of God in Jesus, and God feels it just like a mother feels the cries of her child, just like a man feels his love for the one that he cares about deeply and is wounded. Just like you can't see some kind of injustice and stay far away, the gospel tells us that that's how God feels about us. And because of that, he has intervened to fix the problem for everyone without any help at all. Do you see it? Now, this is worth spending a little more time on. In many places in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle works as hard as he can to unfold this reality so that there's no confusion about what God has done and the difference it makes. And I want to take you now through one passage in Romans chapter 5, which is dense. And you need to put on your thinking cap with me. But I want you to do that. Because in this place, what Paul does is he describes how God made things right through Jesus. And the way he does that is by describing the impact of Jesus' act of compassion and then comparing it with the impact of Adam's act of disobedience. So far, so good? Adam did the wrong thing. Jesus did the right thing. And these two things together teach us the gospel. Let's look at verse 12. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Uh, Paul is thinking back to the story of the garden where Adam chose to disregard God, and in so doing, set the whole world under the oppressive power of the enemy. That was our first message together here. Verse 13, he continues, Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Paul knows that when Adam sinned, it was before God had given his commandments, and even after Adam, all the way up through Moses, Anyone who looks carefully can tell that sin is ruining things. If you read Genesis, you'll see that. It may not be counted as law-breaking because the law didn't come to, to till Moses, but it's obvious that sin is the problem. That's his point there. In verse 14, he says it further. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Paul means death ruined everything for everyone, even if someone did something that was different than what Adam did. And then he gets to the comparison between Adam and Jesus when he uses this phrase, calling Adam a type of the one to come. The one to come is, any guesses? Help me out here. Jesus. Of course it's Jesus. Every time I ask and then pause and go like that. <laughs> right. To say that Adam is a type of Jesus is critical. When one person is called a type of another person, it means that the two have common features which, when highlighted, clarify the significance of the one based on what is known and accepted about the other. And what Paul is saying here is what can be seen in Adam clarifies the scope of what happened in Jesus. In Adam, one bad act had universal implications. In Jesus, one good act has universal implications. Same pattern, but with the opposite effect and outcome. Paul explains this by contrasting the free gift in Jesus with Adam's trespass. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. There's a parallel and there's a contrast. The parallel between the negative consequences of Adam's trespass and the positive consequences of Jesus' grace. They're similar in type since both have an effect on all people but opposite in outcome. Verse 16 makes it explicit. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation... But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. And there are two contrasts there. On the one hand, it was one man's sin that ruined it for everyone. And on the other hand, it's every man and every woman's sin which is dealt with in the free grace of God. One ruins it for everyone. All, and take this personally, your own iniquity, your own transgression, whatever it is, your own waywardness, your own unique patterns of going away from God, which if you're honest, you know that you do, every single one of them is managed in one act of Jesus for everyone. That's what Paul says here. And it is managed in such a way that it can be said that what has happened is justification. Look at that word. And this is a word for the gospel. 
Okay, before it's a technical theological word, it's an ordinary word that Paul drew from his own environment to explain what God did out of compassion for you in Jesus. Justification means rectify or to make things right. What's wrong for you spiritually, deep down and emotionally between you and God? Whatever it is, let it emerge. Justification, first of all, it's a legal term that's used to describe an act of acquittal where a guilty person is exonerated because the judge decides not to deal with them according to their transgression. It's also a word that's used in relationships. When two parties are at war with each other, but then somehow the conflict is dissolved, so they're brought back together and they can be with one another again, that's to say that their relationship has been rectified. That's the second way. A third one is in the medical field. When a bone has been broken and the doctor straightens it out so that it's set right again, so it can heal, that's called justified. And what Paul is saying here is that Adam, just as Adam made everything wrong, Jesus made everything right. And though the consequences of Adam's sin, his trespass, were really, really great, the consequences of God's grace is greater by far. Now, if it doesn't look like it to you, and you can't believe it because what have you, you have experienced, please stay with me. There are plenty of people who stay back in the city and won't believe that the enemy is gone, and so they go on starving, even though the enemy has truly been vanquished. But Paul wants us to understand so he can receive the gospel that the consequences of God's grace are far greater and that the, the gift of grace is superior to the effect of trespasses. Look at verse 17. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's way of saying, if you can be certain of the negative effects of sin, you can be more certain of the life-giving effects of grace. Notice, please, who it's for. For those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. Life comes in receiving what God has freely done in Jesus. Think back to Samaria. Very simply, life comes for those citizens in the city when they leave the walls and go out to the resources available where the enemy has been vanquished. God has changed everything, but experiencing it requires a walk. We will want to know, how does one receive the gift of Christ's righteousness? How about those who do not receive it? Uh, What about the person who doesn't believe or never hears of it? What about them? Those are good questions about faith, but before going down the path that they lead us on, which we'll do uh, next week and subsequently, we must note what happens before anyone receives the gift. And this is critical to the gospel. Before one even receives the gift, justification has happened. Uh, Jesus has set things right first. Not after, but before there's any chance to receive, there has been a change in circumstances just as it was in Adam's disobedience. Look at how Paul wraps it up in verse 18. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Adam's transgression led to condemnation for all people who would come after him. Jesus' act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people, not after, but before they had any chance to believe or act or feel or think or do anything at all to affect the change in their own circumstances. When you 
had yet existed. This is what the gospel says. You already were in the heart of God. Every misdeed and misstep of yours was known by him, and because of his great love for you, he felt a compassion for you that moved him to intercede on your behalf and to come in Jesus to fix the problem. God's compassion always has been, is right now, and always will be for each and every one of you. And that compassion moved him, the Bible tells us, to move away from the grandeur of heaven, to come and be found born as a man in Jesus, born in a manger, to grow up and walk the path of a real life so that he could die to rescue you from sin. And that's the gospel. Why would he do it? And it's a real good question. The gospel tells us not because of anything in us. Because rarely will one person dare to die for another person, though perhaps for a righteous person, someone might dare to die. And then Paul says it explicitly in Romans 5, 8. But God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why. Because Jesus is God's compassion in person. And he has come to make everything right for us. And that's the gospel. How? How does he do it? I get asked that question from time to time, and I'm thankful that I am asked that question. If you would set Paul aside with me and then let Jesus answer that question, how does God's compassion rescue us? Would you imagine that you were with that crowd of harassed and helpless people who were listening to Jesus teach? Imagine you were there with him and every bit of your need was exposed in Jesus' eyes, and you knew it. And then imagine Jesus unfolding a story like this to teach you about God's compassion for you. Imagine this. A servant had been working with his master's money and he was doing a bad job. He had invested it, but he'd made poor decisions over and over again. He was going further and further into debt. He was not paying attention to the books at all, so he didn't really know how bad it was, but his mismanagement went from bad to worse until the day when that king called his servant before him so that they could settle accounts. The books were open, and now that servant stood before his king when it was made clear how bad it was. He owed the king 10,000 talents. Since he couldn't pay, the king ordered the man and his family and everything he owned sold to compensate for this great debt. Hearing the news, of course, broke the man's heart, and so he began to plead with the king, King, he said, have patience with me and I'll pay back everything I owe you. This is an absurd promise. 10,000 talents would take a laborer working every day 150,000 years to pay back. And so he doesn't need patience. Can you tell what he needs? He needs mercy and forgiveness. He needs the king to have compassion for him. When God sees your debt, it moves him deep down inside in his splunkna, and he has compassion for you. And what this king does, according to Jesus, is he forgives every penny of the debt, and he releases that slave from everything he owes, and he frees him to go on forever without that debt. Or how about this story? A traveler was walking from Jerusalem all the way home on the mountain road, windy and steep alone, when a band of robbers surprised him, they beat him up, stripped him down, and stole everything he had and left him half dead there on the road. 
as he was laying bleeding in his wounds. Against all odds, he hears the footsteps of another traveler. And now there's some hope. Maybe he'll be saved. But as this one gets closer, instead of coming over to help him, he moves to the other side of the road, passing him by, leaving him. It happens a second time. Another traveler comes and sees him in his wounds and in his helplessness. But instead of helping, he goes by. He can't or won't help. Both of these two, they were religious men, but they didn't have time for this man. But then a third traveler comes. This one's not a religious person. He's the kind of person you would think was a bandit, a Samaritan. But when he sees that broken and wounded traveler lying on the side of the road, it cuts him right into the heart. He's moved with compassion. In Greek, same word, splankizomai. And here Jesus is saying, if you are wounded by sin, that's how I feel about you. The Samaritan gets off his animal. He takes wine and oil and he pours it on the wounds of the traveler and then he works them with his own hands until they're cleaned and then binds them. He lifts this wounded, hopeless person and places him on his own animal and then he walks beside them all the way to the inn at the end of the road. And when he gets there, he takes out his own money and he gives it to the innkeeper and he tells him, whatever it costs to fix this man, I will pay every penny. Let him stay as long as he needs. I'll return and pay for it all. That's God's heart toward you when you're wounded. Or here's one more. A young man is wasting away in a foreign country far from home, and he's in a pigsty. Back at the family farm, which he left behind, his father and his brother are doing quite fine. Earlier, he had said to his father, I don't want to work any longer here. Give me the share of the inheritance that would be mine. And he took it, and he went, and he squandered it, on prostitutes and parties. And after he'd spent everything that he had, a famine struck that land, and he was so desperate he had to hire himself out to a wealthy citizen in that country who sent him to feed pigs. And as he fed the pigs, he, he lusted after the pods which they ate, but they gave him nothing at all. And then he came to his senses, and he thought of his father's home, and he wondered, maybe, just maybe, my dad would treat me as a slave if I returned. Perhaps he would let me live on the borders of his land and eat the bread which they which they throw out at the end of every meal. And so he gets up and he goes back home. But on his way, his father sees him all the way on the horizon because his dad is waiting for him, watching to see if his son will, in fact, anytime soon return. And the moment he sees him, he runs toward him, and he runs toward him as the son begins to rehearse the speech that he wrote to try to convince his dad to treat him as a slave, but the father doesn't even listen for a second. Instead, he embraces him with a warm hug. He gives him a kiss on the cheek. He puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and he wraps his shoulders up with the best possible robe, and then he tells his servants to go get the fatted calf and kill it so they could celebrate and have a joyful celebration together. And the father looks the son right in the eyes. And it's compassion that moves the father's heart to receive this wayward son back with no questions asked at all. All three are pictures of how it is that God's compassion rescues not just some other people, but every single one of us who've gathered here in this room this morning. Your debt Every penny of it has been forgiven. Your wounds that have come because you've wandered away from God are healed by the mighty hand of the great physician. You are welcomed home joyfully by your heavenly Father with no questions asked because compassion has come in person in Jesus. What should you do? Let me tell you, you should accept that God has taken away your debt. That's what you should do. You should not hide your guilt anymore, not before God, 
You should expose it and let him see clearly every penny of what you owe. And then let his forgiveness take away every bit of debt except his compassion. You should expose your deepest wounds to God. Don't go on pretending you're fine where you're not. Let each spiritual ailment be seen for what it is. Let him into the shadows and let his light chase away those shades. Let him carry you to the inn and heal you and let him pay for it. Let him pay for every penny of it. Let him handle whatever it costs. You should do that. You should run to the Father. You should not hesitate or wait. You should stop rehearsing the speech that will convince God to forgive you. Leave that. You should flee the scarcity of whatever pigsty you're wallowing in away from God and run right into his arms. No hesitation. Come back home from whichever land you've wandered to and let yourself be joyfully received by God. Let him embrace you and affectionately kiss you. Accept his tender kindness and celebrate in his presence where you are free to dwell forever. Receive all that God has freely done for the world in Christ. No more hiding, no more hesitating, no more carrying your burdens. Accept and believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. God, I ask that you would break down any and all resistance in us to your grace. And let us run to you now in our hearts. Let us leave behind the many and various ways that we've alienated ourselves from you and therefore from one another and from our own true selves. And let us return to your arms where you receive all who come to you gladly with the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ, which is much stronger than any power of sin. Help us receive the gospel not only in our minds, but in our hearts also. And draw us to you spiritually, we pray now in Christ. Amen. <laughs>